Well, one of the beautiful things we see in the Bible is that God reveals himself. He reveals his will, and he reveals his plan of redemption in various ways. In God's word, we encounter stories, laws, poetry, prophecies, and letters. And how awesome is that? We all love a good story. And in the stories of Scripture, we see God revealing himself, making himself known to us, drawing us to himself. In an article on the temple curtain being torn in two, which we'll talk about later in the sermon, Greg Lanier writes, In the Lord of the Rings, the doors of Durin bar entrance into Moria under the Misty Mountains. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a mysterious wardrobe grants or prevents entrance into Narnia. And in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, a three-headed giant dog named Fluffy blocks entry to the underground chambers. A key feature of these stories is a barrier between you and where you need to be. In the story of Israel, the most vivid instance of this theme was the finely woven curtain hanging at the heart of the house of worship, separating the holy place from the most holy place. Priests were allowed to minister in the holy place regularly, but only once a year could the high priest pass through the inner curtain into the immediate presence of God. The curtain, in effect, perpetually guarded the entrance to the holiest holy place. We are about two-thirds of the way through our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a profound uh, work of theology highlighting the reasons that Jesus is better than all the Old Testament figures and customs that came before him. And to make his point, the author of Hebrews continually points back to the stories and history of Israel, demonstrating how the people, rituals, Customs and sacrificial system pointed forward to Jesus. And while the book of Hebrews is a profound work of theology, the author of Hebrews describes his letter as a brief word of exhortation. He was writing to exhort. And to exhort is to urge someone, to strongly encourage someone to Go this way, but not that way. To do this, but not to do that. And while he described his letter as a brief word of exhortation, what we have seen over the last few chapters is an emphasis on the person, work, and ministry of Jesus Christ. We have seen comparisons between the Old Testament and the New. We have seen how Jesus fulfills the things that the Old Testament point to. And so these last few chapters have been rich in theology. It's not that there have been no words of exhortation, but most of the the words have been used to uh, describe these profound theological truths. But what we will see today is a turning point in the letter. The focus shifts from the wonderful, glorious person and work of Jesus to how we are to live in response to the truth. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Our passage this morning 
is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. What we are going to see in verses 19 through 25 is a brief summary of the points the author has made in the previous chapters leading into a series of exhortations. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and I encourage you to follow along. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we see in these seven verses is a microcosm of a pattern we see uh, frequently in the New Testament. And that pattern that I'm referring to is a pattern of indicatives followed by imperatives. Indicatives being statements of fact, things that are true. What we see in the New Testament is these statements of things that are true about Jesus and those who have been united to Jesus followed by imperatives or commands how we are to live in light of this truth. And so we see these wonderful, glorious things that are said about Jesus. And again, those who have been united to Jesus and those who have been united to Jesus are those who have repented of their sins and believed in him. When you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you are united to him and you enjoy union with Christ which means our lives, our hope, our identity, and our future are bound up with Jesus. His life is our life. So we read these wonderful things about Jesus and those who are united to Jesus, and then we are commanded to live in a way that's consistent with that truth. So we read things that are true, followed by in statements, uh, statements or commands about how we are to live. And we see this in our passage today. Our passage begins with the word, therefore. The word, therefore, connects what we read today with what the author has said previously, certainly with what he said in the passage that Chad preached last week, the beginning of chapter 10, but also in the chapters preceding that. Really, it's probably connecting everything from chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 10, verse 18. One thing we should notice is the similarities between our passage this morning and chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. If you have your Bible open, I would encourage you to turn back a few pages to chapter 4. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. I want you to look for the similarities between this passage and the passage I just read in chapter 10. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we read, Since then we have a great high priest... Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see the themes repeated in these two passages? The author of Hebrews is helping us out. Bible scholars call this an inclusio. An inclusio is the repetition of the same or, or similar language at the end of a literary section forming bookends. You have bookends, and the content between the bookends is meant to explain or provide support for the things that are said in the bookends. So the repetition of words and themes in these two passages helps us understand the point that the author wants to impress on the readers of his letter. The argument he makes in the middle of these two passages is that as Christians, Jesus is our great high priest who is far superior to all the priests under the old covenant, and his sacrifice is far superior to all the sacrifices under the old covenant. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Well, what does that mean for us? Let's take a closer look at our passage. As I said in verses 19 to 25, we see a brief summary of the points made in the previous chapters and a series of three exhortations. First thing, first thing we see is the summary of points. He referred to the confidence we have to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The superiority of the priesthood of Jesus is seen in the location of his ministry. We have seen this in the previous chapters. Unlike the priests under the old covenant who ministered in the tabernacle or later the temple, Jesus offered his sacrifice in the heavenly places. He offered himself in the full presence of God to which the tabernacle and the temple only pointed to. And because of the work of Christ, we have confidence to enter the holy places. We have confidence to enter the dwelling place of God. He gives us access to the very presence of God. And our confidence to draw near is not in ourselves. We're not able to enter because we live a good lives, because we are moral, because we're upstanding people. No, our confidence is in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. That's not arrogance, that is faith. We enter confidently, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. It is a good thing to enter God's presence confidently on the basis of Christ's person and work. That glorifies Jesus. When you enter his presence with confidence because of Jesus, that brings glory to Jesus. He described the, the way we enter as the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And he uses the phrase new and living way, pointing back to what he said regarding the new covenant and the indestructible life of Jesus. The new covenant that Christ inaugurated is superior to the old covenant. And it's a living way because Christ rose from the grave and he lives and continues to minister on our behalf. So it is a new way, and it is a living way, because Jesus is alive. One of the hymns we sing here is, Before the Throne of God Above. And this song reminds us of the truth that we read here in the book of Hebrews. 
One of the lines that we sing is, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. By the new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain. And the way through the curtain, the way the, uh, the curtain is open for us is through his flesh, meaning his death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, an extraordinary thing happened in the temple in Jerusalem. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, which says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. As Jesus died, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two by an act of God, demonstrating now that the old covenant was passing away, the new covenant was being established, and the way into God's presence was through Jesus Christ. Moreover, we have a great high priest over the house of God. In the Old Testament, the house of God referred to the tabernacle or the temple. But in the New Testament, we see that the house of God refers to the people of God. We are the house of God, and Christ is our high priest who is ever with us as his people ruling and reigning over us. He is the head of the church. He is the great high priest over the house of God. And so the two-part basis for the exhortations in our passage and the rest of the letter is we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through his death on the cross, and we have a great high priest over the house of God. In other words, the barrier between us and where we need to be has been removed. With that in mind, we turn to the exhortations. The three exhortations can be summarized as follows. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold to our confession. And let us encourage one another. First, let us draw near to God. How are we to draw near to God? Well, we see this in verse 22, which says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are to draw near to God with sincere hearts that have been changed and transformed by the work of Christ, which Jeremiah spoke of and our author from Hebrews quoted. The new covenant, he gives us new hearts and it's with these new hearts that have been sprinkled clean by the work of Jesus, our hearts which have been cleansed, our consciences which have been cleansed, we are to draw near with full assurance of faith. Drawing near to God requires faith because we need to believe that he desires to fellowship with us and that through Christ, he has provided the way for us to fully enjoy fellowship with him unhindered. Brothers and sisters, God desires to dwell with us. 
As I said in Hebrews chapter 8, quoting from Jeremiah 31, we read, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This refrain is used multiple times in the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. It is one of the most significant themes we see in scripture. God desires to dwell with his people. And at the end, and at the crescendo of the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God desires fellowship with us. God desires communion with us. He draws near to us, and he calls upon us to draw near to him. We need to have faith to believe this because it's easy to doubt that. It's easy to doubt why in the world would God want to dwell with me? I am a sinner. I've, I'm, I'm wretched. I've failed so many times. Why in the world would God want to dwell with me? Well, he does. Brothers and sisters, that is God's desire. He knows our sins. He knows our failures. He has provided a way to forgive us of all of our sins so that he can dwell with us and so that we can draw near to him. God desires this. We also need to believe the words of Psalm 1611, which says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy is found in the presence of the Lord. Think of all the things we pursue to make us happy, to bring us joy, that we think will improve our lives, that will satisfy us. Well, God in his word reveals to us that joy is found in his presence, and there are pleasures forevermore. Whatever we find pleasure in, in this life, does not compare to the pleasures we find in the presence of God. We need faith to believe this because when we don't believe this, we don't seek God's presence. We chase after other things. We busy ourselves. We neglect to seek him. We, seek, we neglect to draw near. And when we neglect to draw near, we are failing to believe that he desires to dwell with us and in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So we need to have faith to believe these things. We need to draw near with faith. And drawing near to God means giving him our time, our attention, and our affection. Think about relationships where two people grow apart. What happens in these situations? They talk less frequently. They spend less time together. They stop asking questions. They stop looking out for the other's well-being, and gradually, over time, the relationship goes cold. How would you describe your walk with God? Have you let yourself drift away? Has your heart grown cold? Don't let that be the case. 
A healthy relationship requires you to be intentional. How are you drawing near to God by giving him your time, attention, and affection? Are you availing yourself to the ordinary means of grace? The ordinary means of grace, such as seeking him in his word and in prayer. We don't read the Bible merely as a religious duty. We open the word to know God, to draw near to him. I want to encourage you to be in your word. Be in the word and ask the spirit to direct you during that time, to direct your heart, to direct your mind, that you're not merely reading but you're seeking to know God and to have fellowship with him. I hope we can know God through his word, enjoy reading, and not quickly forget what we have read once we close the book. Spend time seeking him in prayer. Spend time praising him. Prayer is not meant to be simply you making your requests known, although that is a good thing. But our times of prayer should go beyond simply asking God for what we want. Do you spend time praising God for who he is, for what he has done? If you don't meditate on that, if you don't think about that, if you don't pray about that, your heart will grow cold. Think about what he's done. Praise his name. Spend time in confession, just as Alan provided the example for us today in his prayer. Spend time in confession. Confess your sins. Ask God to grant you repentance. Pray that you will delight in him rather than delighting in sin. Because we will do one or the other. When we choose sin, we are believing that that sin will bring us more pleasure than the Lord will. Pray that you will delight yourself in the Lord and not delight yourself in sin. Draw near to God. Remember, he wants you to draw near to him. And in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Second exhortation we see is let us hold to our confession Again, we read, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our confession in this verse does not refer to the confession of sins, but to the content of what we believe. The confession of our hope is Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. We need to hold fast to what we believe, what we confess to believe. We will all face temptations to doubt and disbelieve. Your faith will be criticized, mocked, and ridiculed. You'll read things in Scripture that are hard to accept. You'll witness things in life that are hard to understand. You'll go through trials, and God may feel distant. You'll be tempted to loosen your grip on the truth of the gospel. 
Here in our passage, God exhorts us to hold fast to the confession of our hope when that happens. We do so remembering that the one who has promised us eternal life is faithful. We are to remain faithful to what we believe, to hold fast to what we believe, knowing that God is faithful to us. He is always faithful. He is unwavering in his faithfulness. One of the tools we use to help us be faithful, to hold fast our confession of hope, is our statement of faith. As a church, we have adopted a statement of faith which helps bring to the fore some of the most important aspects of our confession of hope. Our statement of faith helps to succinctly describe the core tenets of the Christian faith. And it all comes from Scripture. Our statement of faith has all the Scripture references so you can see exactly where it comes from. It helps us to know what Scripture teaches, to know what we are to believe, and to hold fast to those beliefs. I want to read you one section of our statement of faith that summarizes our confession of hope. In this section of our statement of faith, we read this. We believe that moved by love and in obedience to his Father, the eternal Son became human. The Word became flesh, fully God and fully human being, one person in two natures. The man Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, was conceived through the miraculous agency of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father, lived a sinless life, performed miraculous signs, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead on the third day, and ascended into heaven. As the mediatorial king, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, exercising in heaven and on earth all of God's sovereignty, and is our high priest and righteous advocate. We believe that by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ acts, acted as our representative and substitute. He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconciled to God all those who believe. By his resurrection, Christ Jesus was vindicated by his Father, broke the power of death, and defeated Satan, who once had power over it, and brought everlasting life to all his people. By his ascension, he has been forever exalted as Lord and has prepared a place for us to be with him. We believe that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Amen. That is wonderful, profound, glorious truth. And we agree on this, and we hold fast to this together. We want to be clear regarding our confession of hope. We want to be bold regarding our confession of hope. And we want to be those who hold fast to our confession of hope. And finally, the third exhortation is let us encourage one another. Because of what Christ has done for us, we not only have 
an obligation to draw near to the Lord, we not only have an obligation to hold fast to our confession of hope, but we also have an obligation to brothers and sisters in Christ. We see in the New Testament numerous commands that can be summarized as the one another commands. Commands about how we are to live in relation to one another as the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Christian life cannot be lived independently or in isolation. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you have a responsibility to encourage other followers of Jesus. Encourage one another. How can you encourage other followers of Jesus? Well, you can encourage other followers of Jesus by checking in with them, asking how they're doing, offering them specific words to encourage and strengthen them, maybe reminding them of a particular scripture that was helpful for you. Maybe if someone's going through a hard time, you can simply pray with them. Sometimes a person that you're speaking with might be going through a hard time and you don't know what to say, and that's okay. Sometimes the best thing you can say is, can we pray? Can I pray for you right now? Don't be afraid to ask a brother or sister in Christ if you can pray for him or her. Look for ways to encourage other Christians. That is what God is calling you to do. Regardless of what your gifts are, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of how many times you've read the Bible, God is calling you to encourage and strengthen other Christians. But you will not be able to encourage other followers of Jesus if you don't show up. We need to show up. We need to show up for one another. We need to get away from the consumer mindset when it comes to our gatherings. When we gather together on the Lord's Day or when we gather at other times, meeting with a Christian, going for a walk, meeting in a road group or a Bible study, we need to get away from the consumer mindset. Not that these things are not beneficial to us. Of course, these things are beneficial to our own souls. But we want to get away from the consumer mindset in the sense that we don't want to be solely focused on what can I get out of this. The consumer mindset is simply focused on how can this benefit me? We don't want to have that, menace, that, that mindset. Instead, when we gather together with other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to have the mindset of, how can the Lord use me to help others? How can the Lord use me to encourage others? I want to encourage you to have that mindset. When we all have that mindset, our church will become healthier and stronger. When we can all prayerfully consider how can the Lord use me when we gather? I hope you think about that on Saturday evenings before the Lord's Day. I hope you pray about that on your way to church. Lord, please use me today. Please provide an opportunity for me to help someone, to serve someone, to encourage someone. One of the best antidotes 
to having a consumer mindset is to become a member of the church. When you become a member, you accept responsibility for the health of the church. The members of this church make a covenant to one another, and the covenant is based on God's word. One of the things we say in the covenant is that we will not neglect to gather together, which is taken directly from our passage today. When you become a member, you make a commitment to fulfill the commands of Scripture with this particular congregation, and you accept responsibility for the health of the church. The members are the ones who are serving and praying and voting on particular and important matters. So I want to encourage you, if you are a regular attender but not a member, take that step. If you want to know how you can help this church, you can help this church by becoming a member. That strengthens the church. The author of Hebrews called out some of the Christians who were neglecting to meet together. He said, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. When you start to miss the gatherings, it can quickly become a habit. It can quickly become something that is not that important for you. You can quickly find reasons to miss gathering together. Guard against that. Fight against that tendency. Do not let neglecting meeting together become a habit. Rather, let meeting together be the habit that you establish in your life. And again, this includes what we do here on the Lord's Day. Our gathering begins on the Lord's Day. That is the most important gathering of the church is when we gather together as the Lord's people on the Lord's day to worship the Lord together. But I would encourage you to not let that be the only time you gather. Look for other times to gather with believers in the week. Again, it could be in having coffee, going for a walk, getting involved in a road group or a Bible study. Make the most of these opportunities. We need to meet together. We need to encourage and strengthen one another. And we must do so while keeping an eye on the day of the Lord's return. Remembering that the day of the Lord is drawing near helps us to make the most of the time we have. There will come a day of judgment. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he promised that he will come again. And there will be a, a final judgment. There will be a time where he separates the sheep from the goats, those who have believed and trusted in him and those who have not. And those who have believed in him will be welcomed into eternal life in his kingdom, and those who have not will enter into eternal conscious torment in hell. Remembering that that day is coming will help us to be faithful stewards of the time that we have now. We don't want to become indifferent. We don't want to be wasteful. We want to remember that that day is coming. We don't know the day or the hour, but it is coming, and it is coming soon, and therefore, we need to make the most of the opportunities that we have before that day comes. There will be a day of judgment. In the meantime, we have work to do. We have opportunities to make the most of. We have the work of the ministry to carry out, and we have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage. Our passage today reminds us of wonderful things that are true of those of us who have trusted in Christ and gives us these wonderful exhortations to how we are to live in light of this. 
If you are not a Christian, we are glad you are here. And my hope and my prayer, my desire for you is that you will recognize, like the rest of us, that you need a Savior. You are a sinner just as we have all sinned against God. Not one of us has perfectly obeyed God's righteous standards. And because we have all fallen short of God's righteous standards, we are all in the need of having our sins removed so that we can enter into God's presence and enjoy him for all of eternity. And God has provided that way by sending Jesus Christ into the world as the savior of the world. Jesus went to the cross, taking the punishment for the sins of his people. He rose from the grave, conquering death. He appeared to many people, proving that he is alive, and then he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And if you're not a Christian, now is your time to repent of your sins, to believe in Christ, and to be saved. Salvation is found in no other name except for the name of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I hope and pray and plead with you, believe in Christ, be saved. If you are a Christian, then you have been united to Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been granted full access to the presence of God, and Jesus Christ is your great high priest over God's house. In light of that, let us be those who draw near to God. Let us be those who hold fast to our confession. And let us be those who intentionally look for opportunities to encourage and strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our gathering here and now. We thank you for the encouragement and the joy that comes from gathering together as your people, singing your praises, praying to you, reading your word, hearing your word proclaimed. These are good gifts, Lord. We thank you for them, and we rejoice in you. We pray that we will be a people who remember and reflect and meditate upon what you have done for us and who we are in Christ Jesus. And as we are changed and transformed by the glorious truth of the gospel, we pray that we will be diligent to draw near to you. We pray that we will persevere in holding fast to our confession. And pray that we will be intentional to encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ. May this be true of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.